Ringo, I understand that the record album Help has four different numbers in the English version than in the United States version. Is this ah, true? Yes, and if so, good. why? Yeah. Are the because, different? Um, in on the English now. album, there's 14 well, tracks. Tell them. And they're all our numbers. And on the American one, I don't know how many tracks are ours, but then you've got some... There's seven of ours. It's because capital issue all sort of mad stuff. You know, it's nothing to do with us. We See, make 14 tracks to be put out, but they keep a couple and it's stick them out later. It's a, a drag because, you know, the album, we, we make an album to be like an album and, and to be a and they wreck complete it. thing and we send it over here no offense capital but uh, send it over here and they put the soundtrack on and if so you know if someone's going to buy one of our records i think they want to hear us and not soundtrack they even change the photograph off the front and put something <laughs> daft on mm. yeah either that or they should make it all well, sound capital would like to come round after we'll settle it we'll see him I'm Eric Taros. I'm Alan Cozy. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Craig Bartok. The Beatles make it.
say that might cause you pain If I catch you talking to that boy again I'm gonna let you down And leave you flat Because I told you before Oh, you can't do that Well, it's the second time I caught you talking to him Do I have to tell you one more time? I think it's a sin I think I'll let you down
you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. Why? <laughs> the Beatles provided us with delicately prepared gourmet meals, and your lot just smothered it all in ketchup and maple syrup. And mayonnaise. You say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your excuse, eh? I, I'm here to defend Queen and Country. I see. What do you have on your breakfast cereal, then, without the mayonnaise? Leave it plain. Leave it as the chef intended. Oh, boy. I don't know about that. I have seen British people eat pizza with pineapple on it. And what's wrong with that? <laughs> Same thing. I, Californians do that, too. Yeah, that's a big one. Unfortunately, I never got that either. Yeah, I should explain that what we've been listening to is a sort of juxtapositioning of UK releases of Beatles material and then the US. First the UK, then the US. UK, as a generalization, fairly dry and in your face. You're in the studio with the band. Whereas the American ones, a lot of them heavy reverb, some kind of fake stereo, and you don't feel like you're in the studio with them. It's as if they're at a distance to me in some kind of cavernous outdoor venue. Yes, they wanted us to feel that we were seeing them in the cavern. You know, I have to admit, for most of this show, I'm probably, probably going to side with Richard a bit, except in certain very pronounced places, because I guess, let's face it, folks, we didn't quite get the artistic vision of the Beatles up until Pepper, really, did we? Right. Yeah. Listen, I mean, what Richard says about the Beatles preparing a you know, delicately made meal and uh, smothering it with ketchup is, I mean, the, the, of course, there's something to that. Um, there's even a lot to it. Um, and I would say that once I discovered the British albums, uh, basically, I guess, at the end of high school or so, uh, I barely listened to the American albums ever again until they came out in 2004 and 2006 on the um, the first set of, of reissued CDs. The second set, the American albums, is basically useless because they just replaced the tracks with the 2009 remasterings and... Um, you know, th there are certain things that are lost there because there are certain unique mixes that we got. Right. Yeah, I noticed that going through, and I hadn't noticed that the 2014 ones were, you know, basically some new thing. You know, they I guess, are they mostly, like, folded down uh, from the stereo for the monos? Uh, no, not necessarily. I mean, they re they replaced the mono tracks with the mono 2009 remasters too and and there were a bunch of tracks where there were some specific differences with the u.s ones where they actually retained the u.s mix but not all of them i mean for instance dr robert i don't think they use the american one so at the end of the american no, one you don't no. hear him uh Say okay, Herb. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. He said something to somebody. I remember there was a and there was mumbling in places on the Hard Day's Night soundtrack. Though the the mono of and I love her seems to be the same. I checked it out with my original mono album from when I was a kid, and I'd always gotten used to that. I know we'll probably get into this later, but the idea that that mono version of and I love her was how I always expected to hear it, and I still think it's superior to the stereo. <laughs> I give 
river all my love That's all I do And if you saw my love You'd love her too I love her She gives me everything And tenderly The kiss my lover brings She brings to me And I love her I love like us Could never die As long as I have you near me Bright are the stars that shine Dark is the sky I know this love of mine Will never die And I love her comes in double tracked sort of in the chorus bits it's interesting i was reading mark lewison's tune in you know the relevant parts relating to the relationship between emi and capital and this issue of not releasing first of all british material that went way back to the end of the 1950s early 1960s and it's pretty amazing that while George Martin was really frustrated with this and so were the EMI execs they never saw fit to pull rank about it but as I said to Mark what still astounds me you know given all of that there was this arrogance we know about this you know on the on the American part in terms of they know what's best for the American market and so they'll choose what they want to release or what they don't want to release. But it seems that Dave Dexter had a real attitude about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and, and when it came to the Beatles, he said that when he heard Love Me Do and he heard the harmonica, he'd grown up listening to blues records. And this basically wasn't blues. So that kind of ruled them out right from the start. But as I said to Mark, what's amazing to me is that even given that, I'm just astounded that George Martin, EMI, and the Beatles didn't ultimately pull rank and, you know, exercise some muscle when it came to meddling with the music itself. You know, I would have thought that the Beatles would not let anyone go near their music. 
Well, when do you think they would have been able to do that? I mean, that's the real question because it's is it's easy in retrospect to be a little bit more judgmental, but nobody really could know back in 1964 that the Beatles were going to become the Beatles and that everything they touched should be treated like gold. So, at what point, you know, do do the Beatles and and George Martin put their foot down and say, "Okay, we know more about what's going on over there and you should t- you shouldn't be touching on music." Wouldn't you say by the time of at least Rubber Soul, where they're clearly taking the studio, you know, sessions much more seriously? Yeah, I would, but it it's tough uh, uh because uh, Rubber Soul is it it's uh, there's a lot of people over here that that really have a fond attachment to the the, the version of a rubber soul that came out and um, you know it's once it's it's really tough because growing up in a culture where the single is always on the album it's like I think as honestly I mean like the earlier comment it's like I sort of like I sort of abandoned the American stuff when the the British the British stuff came out but I'm just going through and looking at Meet the Beatles. Uh, Versus with the Beatles, I mean, man, that is a solid. Like Meet the Beatles is really a solid lineup. I mean, you know, we can sit here and bash, you know, Dave Dexter all all we want, but I mean, we're look. I'm looking at this like the first song you hear is "I Want to Hold Your Hand," which is Beatlemania at its peak, and then it goes into "I Saw Her Standing There," this boy, and then you get into the "It Won't Be Long" and all I've got to do and all that. I mean. If there's one thing that I'm looking at these these American albums in retrospect and not looking at it as a bias in 2018 and looking at everything should be just treated like it's coming down from the mountain, um, these he really did know how to sequence an album. Well, you know, I understand that it's easy in 2018 to now sort of look back and say, look, by not issuing the UK albums... Right. in america we're basically they're destroying the arc of the beatles career you can't see the the real progression absolutely right now i understand that back then they wouldn't be thinking that way however right. wouldn't he have noticed even then the stark difference between the please please me album and with the beatles that with the beatles sounds so much fresher even within nine months you can hear the advance. Sure you can, but I don't know whether if you're a record executive and you're not thinking of it in musical terms and you're thinking that teenagers are buying this and they're, they're putting it on their, um, their portable uh, uh, mono little record players and they're listening to it. You know, the differences between the, the... I mean, we can look at... We look at this stuff now and we say, wow, this is wildly inconsistent. The Beatles' second album is jumping all over the place. And I mean, there's there's the simulated stereo stuff. There's like it it just skips all over. But you have to remember that listening to it on a record player in mono, coming out of a small speaker in a bedroom, those differences they don't really it it's it's not really nearly as apparent, and especially to a teenager. I would say not only that, Craig, but uh, that's where all that nice reverb comes in. You know, you want to make stuff sound a little more consistent. Let's just. Let's reprocess it. Let's beef up those drums. Let's goof with the yeah the sonics a bit. You know, I, I don't know. Th- I don't know that consistency was that much of a problem in those early albums. I mean, on with the Beatles, the only thing that doesn't really belong there is I saw her standing there, and I saw her standing there is actually the most like a with the Beatles song 
um, of of anything on Please Please Me. I mean, it, if you're going to take one track from Please Please Me, except maybe Please Please Me itself, um, and have it fit with the rest of these songs, I saw her standing there, it does that. And it was the flip side of the single, and so pretty much had to be on there. I think there's another thing that we should acknowledge, which is um, one of the reasons they couldn't put out the Beatles albums as they were, or didn't want to, is that there was royalties were calculated differently in the UK and in the US. Um, and one of them, uh, you know, if you had, I, th- I guess the British one, if you had 14 tracks, the royalty for the whole album was divided by 14 and that was and and the composers were paid you know one fourteenth whereas in the u.s they were calculated separately per song and to have a 14 track album would have pushed the royalty cost up which from capital's point of view would have had to push the retail cost up and you know obviously a company is going to want all of its records to pretty much sell for the same thing so they so they had to cut down to tw- they had a 12 song max and as craig said you know the single had to be on the album that's just what we were used to as as buyers and you know and 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 so that meant getting rid of two more songs so you've already got four songs kind of kicked out of each honestly album. i would have i would have felt cheated if i would have bought um meet the beatles and they had just come out, and I Want to Hold Your Hand wasn't on it. It's just, you know, this is this is the culture that we grew up in. And I think Dexter was, was he wasn't deciding on consistency in art. He was deciding these, the order of these albums. He was going by energy. And um, this, he knew that's what drove, and I'm not defending Dexter, really, but I'm just, as I just look at these albums, like the Beatles' second album, I mean, there's only 11 songs on it, but it really rocks. It does. You know, and it, and it, it really does, and there's a lot of people that have fond memories of these earlier albums. And, and um, so I don't think there's a real serious right or wrong here. And, and I, I look forward into getting into the reverb issue and a, and a number of other things. But, you know, we're talking about my childhood here. And, and I, I want the singles. You know, I, I, want, I was surprised when I found out years later that, that you know, I, that the Beatles didn't put the singles because they felt like it, was, it wasn't being fair and that the buying public would have bought the 45s anyways. Um, I, as a kid, didn't buy 45s. I just bought albums, and I wanted, like, I always wanted the single to be on there. I, I would have felt cheated if the exact opposite would have happened. Mm-hmm. To add to that, too, Craig, uh, you know, when you look at the Beatles' second album, the American Beatles' second right. album, you've got uh, EP material on there, and we get into the EP thing where eventually I think even the Brits uh, kind of lost favor with uh, the EP concept. Yeah. Uh, certainly it was dead in America by the time, you know, I know they tried with a couple of things with the Beatles, but they, they're they pretty obscure. Right. Uh, so that even muddied the waters further. I mean, the classic example later on where the, the tail successfully wags the dog is uh, Magical Mystery Tour. Absolutely. With that uh-huh. ridiculous double EP, which even the Brits figured out was a stupid idea uh-huh. and eventually got rid of. But, um, that you know, that... As I say, there was a lot of tracks floating around, and I think it, as you say, the sequencing of them, and then a little doctoring here and there, while I can't condone it, 
there are standout tracks where, I mean, I'm sorry, I just cannot listen to the studio version of She Loves You the, that, that either Australia or England or the rest of the world heard. Give me that train station reverb. Really? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Man. Sacrilege. She loves you, yeah. that we tuned in late you know we tuned in end of 63 i mean last days of 63 really and so fundamentally you tuned in where the story really starts didn't you alan (laughs) (laughs) right um so we didn't know that much about the beatles as a dance band playing covers and all of that stuff we were being sold you know not only was this an exciting hot new group but they also wrote their own stuff and it's really great stuff meet the beatles with the exception of till there was you um it's all originals and so we're introduced to the beatles with an album of lennon mccartney songs one harrison song and then one cover that seems like it's put there almost for the parents you know um yeah and then the beatles second album then lets us catch up with the other side of the coin. There's a lot more covers there, all the covers that were taken off of um, 
uh, with the Beatles and things that were on EPs. And um, so we're sort of playing catch up a bit with the second album. And um, I, I think those two records make a lot of sense if you look at it that way. Craig, um, you know, obviously you were a kid at the time, but I think we've already established that musically you were already pretty astute. You know, you, you picked up on stuff that a lot of other kids wouldn't. Right. With these albums, aside from the duophonic stereo and the reverb, but purely in terms of how they were recorded, as I said, you know, this advancement from one album to the next in the UK, did you ever pick up on that in these you know, whether it's Beatles 65 or Yesterday and Today, did you ever sort of hear anything that was a bit jarring where it sounded as if this didn't kind of meld, you know, some material didn't meld with other material? You know, um, my parents had a, just a, the, the piece of furniture in the living room that was just a big mono speaker and it, was, it held the, the, um, the records and we bought everything in mono. Yeah. Back in those days. And, and you know, I really didn't up until the, probably the first maybe three or four albums, I didn't really hear any huge inconsistencies because um, mm. I was hearing them on small mono um, stereo, I mean, small mono record players or my parents' hi-fi in the living room. And um, so I wouldn't have heard that, like, I wouldn't have known that the, the there's only a, a mono version of She Loves You back in those days. Um, and once again, see, for me with the Beatles, it was all about the energy. And that's what I appreciate about this stuff, just staring at Meet the Beatles right now and the lineup and the energy that it created. I remember the first time I ever even heard the Beatles, I was with my my mom and my sister at a diner and um, a couple of teenage girls put some um, money in the um, the jukebox and played. I saw her standing there, and I can remember them standing up and dancing to it, and just being bowled over by the by the energy of just hearing that for the first time. And so it was all about energy. That's that's. It wasn't about um, an artistic statement. It wasn't about consistency. It was just energy, pure energy coming off the speakers. Do you think any of you guys? Do you think that if the UK albums had been released, and you know, even hearing what you said, Alan, about the royalty structure, but let's just say they had released the UK albums, do you think it would have diminished shells in any way? Hard to know. I don't know about that. Yeah, I think it might have, to tell you the truth. And I can give you a case in point, in a sense, with another person that I hold in the same regard, in a sense, as the Beatles, which is Kate Bush, uh, who's somebody that... Uh, if she had taken, I was just thinking about this the other day, that if she had taken the same route as the Beatles, he or she had worldwide success everywhere but America. And it took her seven years to break into America, in, you know, outside of a cult, to have a hit of any sort. If she had taken, say, Lionheart and The Kick Inside and taken the best tracks from that and made one sort of real more American-centric album, I think she would have broken America much earlier. So I think that uh, Meet the Beatles is really a hell of a lead-off. And let's put ourselves back in 64. These guys, have been, you know, from Nick Vinay to Dave Dexter had been shoving the Beatles aside, and then finally you get Mr. Livingston involved, and he's like, well, um, you know, we're now we're going we're to put the big ad campaign. You know, I, I just right. was looking at the memo the other day from 
uh, I think it was December 23rd, 1963, where they said that, you know, January 64th is the year of the Beatles. So once they put their shoulder into it, I think they wanted to exert their knowledge. Okay, all right, you know, we're behind you now. We're going to do it the American way. We're going to take the best tracks. We're going to put sort of a a modified cover out there and yeah yeah we're we we know how to do this we're going to make you guys a success um and and they did well it was it was all marketing wasn't it even you said like the album covers they were designed with marketing in in mind rather than art oh of course look at the beatles second album it's it's almost like a you know you got a picture from the press conference at jfk and uh you know you got that sort of hackneyed publicity picture that they were using to promote the Ed Sullivan show, I think. And and there's bits and pieces of stuff that just look very Ed Sullivan-esque. I think there is even one picture from the Ed Sullivan show on it. So, uh, yeah, it's almost kind of like, okay, here it is, guys. <laughs> Don't forget. you know. I, I mean, I'm sure that was hanging in the balance, too. Will these guys be a flash in the pan? Right, if you watch right. all the news footage, that's all you hear about. Okay, how many months will this last in America? So going with what you're saying, Eric, you know, in terms of you used Kate Bush as a sort of parallel example, um, what is it then that is required in America if you're going to generalize compared to the rest of the world? I think uh, Craig touched on it when he said that Meet the Beatles is basically a songwriting showcase. Okay. (laughs) Suddenly became Ed Sullivan. Uh, It's a songwriting, uh, you know, it's the idea that they write their own material. If you had put out that first Please Please Me album where, you know, it's their stage act and there's a lot of New York-centric girl group songs, I think it may have been sort of dismissed. Ah, You know, as Lennon used to say, we're just taking black American music and making it a little whiter and selling it back to him. I think somebody might have made a case for that. You couldn't do that out of the shoot with uh, Meet the Beatles. You know, the, the one, it was almost a humorous cover of Till There Was You when you think about it, because, you know, they always made a joke about Sophie Tucker, mm-hmm. um, you know, but, uh, but I think that showed, that one cover showed that these guys knew about entertainment, you know, because that's a show tune, right? So it was not just for the parents, I think, but but also just to kind of, for those sneering people out there who didn't think they knew what they were doing. And there was plenty of that out there. People, oh, these guys aren't real musicians, you know, not like jazz people. Yeah, Um, like Quincy Jones. (laughs) Right. Well, we can get into that later. I'm going to defend Quincy Jones. I think he's, uh, you know, there's a reason he said what he said. I think it's kind of out of context. Yeah. So the thing is, you guys always have to be different, don't you? Just bloody awkward. We are yeah. as our God made us. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, getting back to Richard, back back to the Beatles' second album, yeah, and the cover. I mean, to me, looking at it, it's just like they're showing Beatlemania. This right. is this is the excitement. Once again, it comes down to energy, and it's all these little pictures of them doing all these things and being cool and being on the Ed Sullivan show and press conferences. And it's, that's all excitement. That's all things, you know, we're going to stare at that big album cover and we're going to look at and dissect all those pictures. And, um, it's just, it makes sense because that, that album cover matches the music that's in the Beatles second album. It's just really exciting. And to get back to your question about would it have hurt, um, if the singles weren't on the album, I think it definitely would have been harder, a harder sell. I mean, it's the Beatles, so people would have gone out and bought it in droves. But I think that, that 
if just looking back now and say the Beatles hadn't become the Beatles and maybe they were more like Freddie and the Dreamers, God forbid, um, <laughs> if um, if they did with the Beatles as opposed to meet the Beatles, I think it would have hurt sales immensely. So of the American albums, which do you think are the best and the worst? Oh, that's an interesting question. That's a good question. This, I, I can... T- answer that in a sort of sideways fashion if you will um and there's there's some that i absolutely cannot do without there's there was a couple of albums i was dying to have on cd that were american only the the leader of that was help yeah i absolutely adore the american help really? album i i don't like the british help album huh. I'm, i'd never listen to the british one i just find it to me it, it it just feels even though i know it's not intellectually it feels Bland. Really? Pagan. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. So the interspersed instrumentals uh, work for you? Love them. That's great. Love them, because it, it, it runs the movie in my head. I couldn't wait to get those in great quality. I mean, I blast those in the car, because it gives me, <laughs> you know, I embarrass myself singing along to every single song. And uh, and then uh, I mean the from me to you fantasy is one of my favorite weird movie instrumentals. Right. It's I think it's fantastic. You know I think it's funny and good at the same time. And the movie runs in my head whenever I hear those instrumentals. So you have no problem missing all the other tracks. No, because I we d- got I, them eventually. <laughs> yeah, we got them. I mean, I think yesterday fits well on yesterday and today. Yeah. You know, it's like... And I've just, live, and I've just seen the face fits perfectly as an opener to Rubber Soul. Absolutely. <laughs> You're I, revealing yes, your I true colors now, Cozen. <laughs> I like... I'm one of those people who like the American Rubber Soul. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm with you on that. Oh, my God. I, I, I like them equally. I, I, I grew up with one, but now I, I must admit I, I do favor the Brit one on that one. So I guess I'll put a check mark into... Uh, into uh, so you prefer the American rubber soul, the, this folk rock mishmash? Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know about prefer. I just think that it actually makes a lot of sense as an album by being a folk rock album. Um, that said... Um, it does violate the concept suggested in the title of the album Rubber Soul, which really? um, you kind of need. You kind of need the British album to make sense of of that title, I think. But nevertheless, you know, I don't think that exactly. It's not Rubber Folk, is it? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, but you know, but Rubber Folk isn't. Is it? Wouldn't have been the pun, you know? I mean, we we just heard it as a pun in those days. We didn't. We didn't think of the soul aspect that much because this album didn't sound that way. Well, that's right. And I mean, soul soul music didn't come from these shores, did it? Absolutely not. No, but Rubber Folk sounds like something naughty that goes on in the village. <laughs> it's like a club you could go to. Maybe that might have been a that's more true. interesting album. <laughs> so, okay, so go on. So what are the best American albums? You've said Help. 
Yes. All of you dive me. in here. Which are the best ones? And then tell me which you think are the most egregious. Well, I think Meet the Beatles is one of the best. Yeah. I think Beatles' second album is one of the best. Obviously, the worst has to be the Beatles story. I mm. mean, that's I, yes. I don't know anybody well, that, that actually count. bought that or listened to it. <laughs> it doesn't count. Oh, I have it. Yeah, well, let me, what do you mean they didn't listen to it? Don't you realize that was the first release of, of any part of the Chase? Uh, Hollywood Bowl. Uh, the first. Right. Yeah, oh, thank you. Hollywood Bowl. The right. first release of Hollywood But Bowl. only like 10 seconds of it. I mean, it's, you know. Please, please describe the Beatles story for the non-American listeners. It was a double album set. Uh, it was one of those ultimate, you know, cash-in records that uh, probably was so egregious that it would have made Colonel Parker blush. Should have been on Cashbox, you know. It was a documentary. It, was a it, it, it wasn't. Joke. I mean, it, it's true that looking at the cover, you didn't necessarily know that, with the exception of that ten seconds of of uh, Hollywood Bowl, Twist and Shout, that you weren't really going to get much in the way of music, and that mostly you were going to get a kind of cheesy narration that was a little bigger on myth than on facts, but. Um, um, I, it's very funny now. When it really to it. is. It's, it's, it's definitely a period piece, and I, I don't even think it should count as a Beatles album, frankly. But I say it's less of a documentary and more of a press kit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's brilliant. Brilliant marketing. I mean, what other group got people to buy their press kit? <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. If it moves, sell it. It was yeah. the first APK. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really I guess, was. yeah, you're right. Okay, there we go. We can claim that for the Beatles, the go. first EPK. That one aside, which do you think are the worst Beatles, American Beatles albums? One more good one. Beatles 65. I like Beatles 65. Hmm. Why do you like Beatles 65? Well, because I grew up with it, number one. Uh, number two, it has... It has uh, She's a woman, as if it was recorded in a train station. Uh, it has yeah. I Feel Fine, as recorded in a train station with power. And if you look at the song titles, it more or less was the touring album of the last year, at least. And a lot of those songs were on the final tour. You know, Babies in Black, right? Rock and Roll Music, I Feel Fine, She's a Woman. Those four songs alone made up a, a chunk of the of their final touring set. So... It's kind of like they were touring the American albums, you know, because they did some Yesterday and Today stuff as well. <laughs> so uh, I just, I've always loved that album. I, that's of the, I know it's bad. I know it's, it's the most American of the American albums. That's how I'll put it. Whatever that means. I would say the most egregious one, you know, probably is Revolver, just because it's exactly the same as the British one, but missing three tracks. I mean, you get no benefit right. from the American Revolver. Um, but all the others, there's something about them that um, that I like. And, and again, accepting Beatles' story, because it's not really, you know. But, you know, Meet the Beatles and second album we talked about. Um, I could do without the U.S. Hard Day's Night, um, but Eric must love that, because it's the same as the i was gonna yeah. say sacrilege well, you see you know here's the thing you're not gonna get this, was this another... boy you're not gonna get ringo's theme yeah but you know i mean I, I i would just if i wanted that i would rather have just bought you know george martin's relevant album of orchestrations um f from the same period but uh you know we had here's the thing you know there were sort of like two different record buying cultures 
existing at the time. I mean, soundtrack albums were a real big deal in the U.S., and soundtrack albums were always a combination of songs and orchestration and, you know, like the Hard Day's Night and Help album. Plus, in the terms of the Hard Day's Night album, which was really United Artists, um, you know, that was that was what they wanted. They they signed the Beatles to do the movie so that they could get right. a soundtrack album. And yeah. that's really only a handful of songs, leaving Capital other songs to put on something new, which is kind of a fun album. And you got Come Give Me Dinah Hunt at the end. And uh, I wish they had put Dish on there too. But, um, you know, and... I think the stereo-only version of Something New had the longer version of I'll Cry Instead with a looped-in verse. Not that it's a big deal, but I mean, it apparently was sent to them from England that way, so it's not as if Dave Dexter looped it. It was George Martin who looped it. So, so do you think, then, that, you know, from Capital's perspective, when they would have received or heard the UK Hard Day's Night album, they'd have thought, that isn't a soundtrack album because seven of the tracks aren't in the film. Absolutely. I really do think that. Yeah. They probably would have thought that, but they did. Capital didn't have the right to put out that soundtrack album. That was United Artists, which Capital later bought. But um, at the mm. time, it was a separate company. Mm. It's one of the reasons I did not like the Something New album because I remember feeling very cheated as a kid because it was a bunch of stuff from from the hard days night yeah uh, and then and i was not into my german phase yet that that was coming years later so i really wasn't very interested in come give me Dinah hand <laughs> the other album i disliked and thought was an egregious uh, uh needless album was the early beatles because let's face it folks by this point if you cared you either had the uh please please me album as nature intended or you went out and bought Introducing the Beatles or my favorite songs, pictures, and stories of the fabulous Beatles. Yes. But who needed the early Beatles by that point? Yeah, it just threw everybody, I think, from, from that point on. You're already, you know, you're already up to Beatles 65, and you've gone through that. Then to go to early Beatles, it's it's kind of strange. I mean, it does feel like it's cashing in. And it you know, that's, Richard, when you were talking about hearing wild inconsistencies, that was like like getting in a time machine and going back. Too, too far. When I mentioned that, Craig, I wasn't just referring to, like, the sonics, but even just the style, the style of songwriting and the production values. You know, as I said, Please Please Me, they've got the sort of doo-wop backing vocals, right? Right. Um, not, not the blended backing vocals that come in later on. So, so right. it's that kind of thing I'm talking about where there's a, an arc to what they're doing, which is getting interfered with and i wondered if you ever picked up on that definitely um definitely by help right um you know by by help and probably hints of it in a hard day's night as well mm. because there's definitely an advance at that point um but yeah once again it's it's boy i'll tell you listening to it it, it depends on what you're what you're actually listening to the music on we didn't have headphones back in those days didn't have earbuds back in those days so referring back to what I said earlier about the difference in sound, you know, the, the effect of the UK releases as such is that we're in the studio with the Beatles, whereas with the American ones where they've really messed with them, because it's not as if they messed with every track, 
but the ones that they did mess with sonically, the impression to me is as if it's trying to create a live sound, a fairly muddy live sound as well. Would you agree? I would say more power than live, and maybe those are synonymous, but I think... I, like I say, I keep coming back to She's a Woman, which sounds, uh, to use John Lennon's expression, like a piece of ice cream next to the thunderous, powerful, over-the-top reverb version that we grew up with. feel that the Beatles are just more at a distance it's not as if they're in your face but they were at a distance you know they only you know for our experience we had no intimate Beatle experience for the most part you know England had intimacy with the television appearances and had the intimacy with these you know dance hall and theater settings so when they came here it was always in some enormous place 
I mean, truly enormous. And they were literally singing to us from across the water. You know, they weren't like the Stones coming over here and running over, over to chess in Chicago. They were always recorded in England. I remember reading that on every label, recorded in England. Right, so, recorded in England. So that was part of it. The, the distance was really part of it, uh, but, part of the but experience But the fact that us. they're only doing it to some of the tracks, okay, what do you think the thinking was behind that on Dave Dexter's part? Do you think it was, apart from, as you said, giving it more power in some senses, do you think it was also a case of let's make it sound as if some of these tracks are live? I think it's more a matter of wanting him to fill out the sound in general. I, you know, It's one of the things that I find interesting about just reverb in general because I started looking at what the American... Uh, record buyers were listening to and if you listen to Andy Williams, Mitch Miller, Phil Spector and even you know and I even went back and I listened through uh, headphones to um, the Everly Brothers and listened to how much reverb is on the tracks and the vocals Mm. of Kathy's Clown. I mean you, you just really need to listen to it and and reverb was pretty much the only real trick or gimmick other than maybe double tracking that they they really had back in those days and reverb was considered to be expansive it was considered to be lush um as a matter of fact i remember when i was a kid i had a friend who his dad had a cadillac and it was some big old eldorado and and i remember uh, in the Cadillac, he had, it, like the rear speaker, we had a huge rear speaker like in the center, and he had a knob that actually had reverb built into his Cadillac so he could get that Jackie Gleason, Mitch Miller sound on the radio, and he could dial in reverb. So, I mean, we're talking about th- this was a fad, but it was also something that the American buying public was used to hearing i mean we weren't used to hearing other than like like maybe records like from chess and 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 r&b and that type of thing in general pop records were bathed in reverb well yeah and obviously we had all the specter stuff that was you know tons of reverb and echo but something like i feel fine makes the specter you know the wall of sound sound crisp and clear i feel fine to me sounds so muddy yeah, it's pretty bad. And um, listening to it um, in retrospect, the mono version seems to work better than the stereo version.
the stereo version is just like a sea of mud. It's like putting your foot into like quicksand and not being able to get it out. Because it's also it's also fake stereo. Yeah, um, they they just had the single. Um, you know what 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 Craig said about um, reverb being the style here is not only absolutely true for records, but when I was growing up, I don't know about you, Craig or uh, Eric, but even the DJs on the radio had had reverb sure all over. They did. You, you know, you, certainly in New York yeah. they did, and a little less so in Boston. But you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. You know, Arnie Ginsberg was always bathed in yeah. it. Uh, a little less so for for Bruce Bradley, but but yeah, all that the guys was the on style. ABC, you know, you, you, yep. WABC. Oh, you, yeah. know, you can get you can Scotty. go on the internet and get um, uh, you know air checks of some of these old shows, and yeah, they they sound like they're sitting in the middle of a of an echo chamber. It's time to hear a brand new. Remember, you get your Beatles fan club membership free by sending me a self-addressed stamped envelope. Scott Muni, WABC, New York 23, for the All-American Fan Club Headquarters for the Beatles. This week, WA Beatles C proudly presents these Beatles spectacular sounds. We're gonna move, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. A Beatles in-person show in August is sold out. But WABC bought tickets for you. (laughs) To win tickets to the Beatles concert, buy a tube of Tackle, Colgate's medicated clear gel treatment, which helps clean up young men's skin infections and clear up skin problems fast. Cut the Tackle wrapper cart into a seven-piece jigsaw puzzle. The seven people mailing in the most difficult puzzles to put back together win pairs of tickets to the Beatles' August concert in Forest Hills. Judge's decision final contest closes July 31st. Win those Beatle tickets. Cut a Tackle wrapper cart into a seven-piece jigsaw puzzle and mail to Tackle WABC New York 23. Tackle WABC New York I promise back again for inner three of our Housewives Hit Parade. Well lit with all kinds of good music for you. This is Mel Miller. It's Wednesday, March the 11th, and during this next 55 minutes, I will announce. So this is like the sonic version of Soft Focus. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what Soft Focus yeah. is, but I'll, I'll, sounds right. Yes. You know what I mean? Doris where Day. You watch a, yes. a, a Doris Day film, yeah, right? Correct. Where yeah, where Rock Hudson's in sharp focus and it cuts to Doris and it's like she's in the middle of a London fog. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's shot through a silk screen, yes. Yeah, yeah a little, mm-hmm. little bit yeah. of Vaseline on the old lens. But but I'm, I'm not kidding when I say that, that if that's what you guys were used to, even, as you say, with the DJs, mm-hmm. Alan, 
is it that kind of thing that it's this kind of gloss as it's mm-hmm. perceived to sort of I don't know I don't know what it's conveying. It's conveying a sense of excitement. You know, it's it's interesting that uh, in your intro where you have the UK and US together, um, the US in a lot of cases really does sound appalling, as if they they are put at a distance because of the reverb and it's so clear on the British ones. But hearing the US ones on their own as we heard them, you know, start to finish the track would come on and it would have, you know, even something like like She's a Woman and I Feel Fine, which I, I really do think are a bit too much. But Yeah, you went over the board. Yeah, yeah. but 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 there's a kind of excitement because of that reverb. Uh, you know, Roll Over Beethoven is one I think actually uh, sounds really pretty good in the American one because it that that reverb gives it almost an extra energy boost it seems I mean it's obviously there's nothing different instrumentally there's nothing different in the playing but just psychologically having that reverb there just kind of uh, re it reinforces the sound and and I should mention too that um Lennon who really disliked his own vocals a lot um used to prefer bathing them in reverb <laughs> so it's kind of like <laughs> which, <laughs> which way do you want it we just sort of gave yeah. him more of what he wanted <laughs> he bathed in reverb oddly enough before he knew yeah. it yeah <laughs> we anticipated what you know we knew what sounded better <laughs> you're right let me ask you this as i said it's not all the tracks that they're messing with yeah and and Craig, you were saying that, you know, it was filling out the sound when they did, you know, add this reverb. Right. Now, is that noticeable on the ones that they didn't do, that those didn't need it? I mean, how do you think they discern between the ones they messed with and the ones they left alone? Boy, that's a good question. I think it probably has to do with production and how much space. I mean, we realize as producers now that space and silence is our friend but back in those days it wasn't and that's why you know am radio was so heavily compressed to to bring up the softer moments to make the, them to jump up um to speed but inter- but an interesting story richard i think the first time i heard um like the dry version of she's a woman was uh, in the when i went to go see help and then this the, the scene when they're digging down below and it's kind of in the background right. i yeah. remember being appalled by listening to it and just going what's wrong with that <laughs> i mean you know is, is it is it did they get some kind of weird demo or something that that uh, that we didn't get or is this doesn't sound nearly as good as the record that i'm used to yeah I can just remember hearing that. I agree with you totally. And and it seems like they did pick to put the extra reverb on something like I Feel Fine. They wanted a hit. You know, um, that was the single. So they wanted to make it sound, as you say, with that ultra compression. We were still a couple of years away from, you know, the the great seismic shift that was album-orientated rock and FM, you know, where the guys talked. Suddenly it was dry, and they're right up on the microphone. I'm a little stoned right now. And, you know, everything's whispering and, like, no energy, and everyone's half asleep. Are you mean, like, classic FM? Yes, I've got. I'm helping out uh, the wonderful Bill Lichtenstein and on that uh, American Revolution film, which you all have to go see about the history of WBCN. And Mm. it is funny when you go back through those, hey, man, uh, those kind of air checks, you know, uh, where guys are talking like this. And, uh, <laughs> right. I remember that. I think it's five past seven. Well, yeah. you know, and it's also, you notice that the reverb was used 
quite a bit less when Jeff Emmerich came on board because his close miking and, and his use of compression, you know, compression took took up the space. And we talked about that in an earlier podcast, how compression works. So Ringo's drums are all of a sudden now much, when he hits his bass drum or his snare drum, it lasts much longer between the beats. And now all of a sudden reverb isn't needed nearly as much as it was in the earlier recordings. And obviously they have more instrumentation going and more tracks, but um, still the compression has a lot to do with it. They did add reverb though to tracks like Dr. Robert and Your Bird Can Sing. I, I know there's like two or three of them where you can hear the differences. Fascinating that the Beatles, correct me if I'm wrong, but their real only foray into a heavily based reverb type of production was that means a lot, which really didn't work very well for them. And it's probably has the least amount of clarity of any of their non-release songs. It's like it seems like they tried it and they tried to get that fact that 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 Spectre type of thing, that American sound, and it just didn't work. It just didn't Mm -hmm. have it. It just sounds muddy.
did you not say to me, Craig, that to this day you still find it hard to listen to the the British version of She's a Woman? Um, you know, only because that doesn't have to happen to be one of my favorite songs. Um, right. I, you know, Paul did the the guitar on the two and four a lot, like the night before, and um, um, there's there's a Can't Buy Me Love it has it also. It's dun bum dun dun. You know, we talked about She's about a mover as well. <laughs> When I was a kid, I was thought, uh, I know that she's no peasant. That I could never get past that <laughs> sentence for some reason. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. It's like uh, she, that song to me feels. It's just I, I can skip over that one anytime. How do you know he's the king? <laughs> <laughs> Funny you mention that one, Craig, because I I adore she's a woman, but mostly in a live setting because I love. I loved how the the energy of that on the last tour, especially coming out of rock, the abbreviated rock and roll music, was a real screamer in a sense for Paul, but a nice controlled one. And yeah, that was that one line. Did why didn't John put his foot down and just yeah. say, no, 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 no? Uh, it, it, lyrically, for me, it's like a kind of sequel to "I Saw Her Standing There." Well, she would not be a girl anymore. She would be. It, to me, I just keep. It's something to do with Jane. You know, he was in a good mood with Jane that yeah. that week. You know, she she got him something, or she. You know, it seems like it's it's funny when you listen to the Playboy tapes and John would be. There was this exercise that they put him through in 1980. Okay, is this your song? Is this Paul's song? Is this George's song? Or whatever. And it was really amusing to listen to the little asides. He'd be like, "Oh, he was mad at Jane that week." You know, <laughs> so it's always about Jane. All these songs. <laughs> Yeah, but the lyrics yeah. feel like a little bit of a throwaway. But you know, Richard, getting back to your point, you know, it's there's a couple songs that that Beatles the Beatles had incredible energy in, and they could have benefited greatly from their past recordings. If you listen to um, like "Long Tall Sally" and 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 that how much energy that has in it, then you listen to "I'm Down" or you listen to "She's a Woman" and how dry they are. And they're, they're such great rock, they have such great rock potential, but the dryness of it kind of, it's it's a little too intimate of a, sonically, for it to work, to match the actual rawness and the energy of the song itself, in my right. opinion. I know that she's no peasant 
when we went through this exercise, I I pulled out my my mint copy of the Long Tall Sally British EP and was completely knocked out. Uh, I I forgot how great the mono Long Tall Sally on the English pressing is. Now that is really special. I'm gonna tell it joking aside you've done a really good job of conveying how it was for you growing up and why it worked you know why the american releases worked for you and i get what you're saying now with 2020 hindsight now in 2018 from an artistic standpoint do you still see any pros to the american releases um, not really. I personally don't. I mean, because we have everything. It's uh, we have everything at our disposal, and we've everything's been released. And and now, looking back, and you look at the albums, they all make sense. The sonically, you can tell that they were all recorded around the same time, and then um, you don't have those wild inconsistencies. So. They don't. Um, it's really more for me. It's a matter of nostalgia and uh, feeling the, the the those early the early excitement of Beatlemania. Um, but I don't find that I listen to the American versions. I, I've been exclusively listening to, you know, the 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 EMI Parlophone versions uh, for for many many years now. Yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, I, I uh, when they when the first CD issues of the 2004, 2006 ones came out. I think they were called the Capital releases. Um, I listened to them really for the first time in probably a couple of decades. And my feeling was pretty much what 
what Craig said, there was kind of a nostalgic rush that I thought I was actually beyond by then. But because um, I, I don't think of my Beatles thing as a nostalgic issue. I think of it as totally a musical issue. So it it did surprise me that I was so taken with the sound of these things, even in the sequences that, you know, brought back those days. But if I were to go listen to any Beatles record now, even Rubber Soul, um, where I've said that I like the American one, I, I would still pull out the British one to play rather than the American. Um, you know, there's another uh, a sonic issue that uh, we touched on only briefly when Craig was saying about She's a Woman and I Feel Fine sounding better in mono than stereo, even with the reverb lathered on, um, and that is the fake stereo business. Um you know, in a lot of cases, Capital only got a mono recording. So something like She's a Woman and I Feel Fine, they had the master for the single. Um, and when it came time to put it on Beatles 65, they didn't bother sending for or maybe couldn't get the stereo mix, actual stereo mix. Um, same with I Want right. to Hold Your Hand and This Boy. You know, they had the single. That was what there was. And they felt that if they're putting out a stereo album... It can't just be a mono track. And their method of making fake stereo was was actually kind of interesting. I mean, I, as a kid, I always thought it was that they boosted the bass on one side and boosted the treble on the other, but it was more complicated than that. I th- it was EQ, wasn't it? Uh, not just. They also put like a, a couple of milliseconds delay, I don't know how many milliseconds, in between the two channels. So your ear felt right. as if it was hearing different things from each channel. Right. But that also can contribute, and especially in a case like She's a Woman, where it's gotten a little muddy because of the reverb anyway, that's going to make it even muddier. Yeah. Right. It also depends on where the, a particular instrument is panned when they do that. Um, I noticed um, on She's a Woman, the, the mono and the stereo version, if you listen to Paul's voice in particular, you can really hear that delay you're talking about. It's um, it's almost like they're using the artificial double tracking thing on Paul's mm-hmm. voice. It's, um, it's very unnatural sounding, and it, it seems to melt back much better in the mono version. So when you bought these albums, were you actually getting them in stereo or in mono? I got them in mono first. They were a dollar cheaper. They were a dollar cheaper, and I I didn't have a stereo until, I don't know, maybe 1968 or so. Yeah, same here. Right. Yeah. When it really mattered, when you could put on like something, and you could actually take a like the first Led Zeppelin album. I can remember putting that album on so I could um, check and make sure that my speakers were wired properly, mm-hmm. because everything was panned so crazy back in those days. So you never heard any Beatles basically in stereo, and you never heard any of those duophonic stereos until much later on, um, right? I had a friend, I did, but yeah. I had a friend who had a um, he he had a his dad had a reel to reel, and he had the Beatles stuff in reel to reel, and um, I believe that was in stereo. But unfortunately, we weren't allowed to touch his stereo system, <laughs> so if we could talk him into playing it, 
we would. But you yeah. know, it was kind of once once I got my stereo, I then went and bought all of the you know still buying American albums, bought them all again in stereo, and that was like a huge surprise because everything that George Martin hated about that early stereo, I loved. Absolutely. You know, and yeah, I would think that Craig would too, because we were both musicians and you could turn the vocals off and hear what the guitar part was. And then you could turn the instruments off and hear the vocal arrangement. You know, you wanted to learn the stuff. That was the way to do it. Yeah, but more than that, I mean, like those those earlier re- those early recordings when just the sound of the room of Studio 2 and before they were using headphones and they were just using the foldback speakers. And I mean, when... You can hear the expansiveness of the room on, like I saw her standing mm-hmm. there. I mean, it's God. The room sounds unbelievable. And then when you hear the like the the Ringo's fills, like uh, like between sentences, all of a sudden because you can hear the compression goes up a little bit, and then Ringo's fills they sound great. I mean, because they it sounds like just like what was to come years later when everybody was trying to get the big drum sound and they were just they were miking like putting a million mics in the room and they were like taking two mics and putting it in the far end of the corner of the room and turning them around so they could everybody could get that Phil Collins sound and (laughs) and even bigger and all that and um, I mean Ringo's drums sounded absolutely amazing in in studio too and you could hear you could hear how well they were tuned not only by the close-up mic, the close-up mics, but just by the 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 um, feedback and everything that was coming from the the other side with the vocals. Yeah, I think you're you're a clean-sounding studio two-sounding record. The uh, epitome of that would be that Australian pressing of "She's a Woman" to me. Um, having uh, you know spent a lot of time in the summer of '83 in in studio two, listening to tapes being played back as part of that that restoration or that upgrade to 48 track or whatever it was that summer that they were doing right and that is the one redeeming thing about it is that one to me sounds the most like when they would play the stuff back you know that kind of super dry and super defined and you know crystal clear right right alan you know are you saying just so i'm clear on this that there's no way in the States at that time they would re- released 14-track albums. Apparently not. Hmm. So, okay, now you be the producer. What would you have done? In, in that? Would you have done what Dexter did at that time? I don't mean now, back then. Or do you think there would have been a better way of approaching it? Okay, um, so if we go back to Meet the Beatles... I don't know what else he could have done. I mean, he had, I want to hold your hand, and I saw her standing there that were obligatory, okay? And he had um, 12 tracks maximum. He basically took, I want to hold your hand, and I saw her standing there, the U.S. single, this boy, the B-side of the U.K. single, and then from there just took, you know, originals, except for until there was you, uh, from with the Beatles, you know, pretty much in order. So I, I don't think that what he did was that radical, you know? I mean, Beatles' second album is a bit more radical because he's drawing on a bunch of sources and singles and EPs and things and uh, 
But yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I might have tried to fight for putting out the albums as they were, assuming that, you know, I was sent a copy of the master of the album as it was made. Um, but I'm really not sure what I would have done back then because, you know, again, as Craig said, we didn't know that this was going to be, you know, the great Beatles who we'd still be talking about right. 50, yeah. almost 60 years later, you know, right. uh, it was a pop record and the idea was to make it appealing and, you know, a hit. And I think he made, he, what Dexter did is he made hit albums. There's no question about that. Um, and they were fun to listen to, you know, at the time and we didn't know anything else. I can't necessarily fault the track sequences. Uh, You know, I don't think, you know, we were talking before about the early Beatles, you know, coming out when it did. I kind of think, I mean, as I remember it, we all kind of knew that that was a belatedly released early Beatles album because the VJ albums had been around with the same stuff. And it just seemed like, okay, this is a way of getting it into the Capitol catalog so we could have it with the same label, (laughs) same rainbow swirl. Um, You know, it, it, it. It doesn't really disturb the sequence that much because it, you know, it says right on it, the early Beatles kind of implies that it's not the new stuff. Now, granted, they did use the cover of the UK um, Beatles for sale, basically. Well, an outtake, right? I mean, it's not exactly right. the same. Um, but yeah, uh, it's not the it's not the picture of them that should have been there. But I think we knew that it was out of sequence, and the rest of them, you know, they're out of sequence a little, but not an awful lot. It's not like it's not like you get a 1963 track on Revolver. Mm. You know, <laughs> oh, surprising. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then you, if you look at the Hey Jude album, that's a mess. But that's you know a lot of stuff yeah. that was left off other American records that were many of which were on British ones, not all. Some were, you know, just singles that weren't on British records by, uh, by design, but things like I should have known better. And, you know, that kind of, I think that was the only place to get the stereo, uh, paperback writer for a long time. And the stereo, Hey Jude and Revolution. Right. Uh, And Craig, from the production standpoint, again, at the time, not now, yeah. but looking at it as a producer, so do you feel that even if it wasn't Dave Dexter, if it was you there, would you have still added some reverb? And if so, would you have just done it with a much lighter touch? What What do you think your production choices would have been? Well, I definitely agree with his sequencing and the way he put these albums together. Um, definitely he went overboard with the reverb on some of this stuff. Um, and I would have probably have tried to match the American market a little bit more like he did. So yes, I would have probably added reverb. Um, you know, it's like, like we were talking about meet the Beatles comes out. I mean, and, um, who knows if they would have even had a second album? Who knows if it just was a flash in the pan? Um, he certainly didn't know, so he's hedging all of his bets, and this first album is going to be the best launching pad in the hardest market in the world for them to crack. So it's probably to their benefit 
and it behooves the Beatles to go out, I mean, to come in with the strongest album they could possibly come in with in a country that where pretty much every other British act had failed up to that point. I second that emotion. I, I have to say what absolutely astounds me is that there are people out there on the Internet who are saying that right now they think that the American releases are far better than the UK ones and that it, it just piss, eh. it pisses them off that the UK ones are seen as, you know, really yeah. the way to go. And it's because it's, it's the way you grew up with it sonically. Do you know what I mean? I think that's what's retro history but does bother <laughs> me. But I think what they're really reacting to is um, this idea that we grew up with something a certain way and now somebody is coming and saying, oh, no, no, those memories of yours and the way you liked having it and the way what it reminds you of doesn't matter because this is what we intended. And I think that gets people's back up. But don't yeah. you also think and it's that, you know, the Beatles were English, so we've got to sort of say that but the Americans knew better about how to put the albums out. Well, it wasn't just the Americans. Let's let's also, if we're going to do that, we also have to talk about the Japanese, the Australians, the Swedish. The I mean, the, the records didn't come out exactly as they did in England uh, or Canada. You know, they mess, messed about a little bit with things, didn't they? So um, I think, as you said at the beginning of the show, who thought 60 years later? Nobody. Nobody. I mean, they would have laughed at you. Like, what? Like, any of this stuff? Forget just the Beatles. Of any of it, they would have thought... I mean, when Elvis turned 30, it was like, you know, gasps of horror. I mean, they were ready to send him off to the uh, to the assisted living. Uh, you know, nobody thought well, that was just based was on him recording old McDonald. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started from the Elvis Sings for Children's album. That's I tell you, if you're in a certain mood, that's a that's a pretty wild listen. But uh, be that as it may, I, I think um, I agree with Craig. I would have added reverb to stuff because the idea was to sell right. you know and i think the beatles were complicit in it and they eventually weren't but i think when they first they didn't howl and complain until 65 i guess so they started getting irritated but when push came to shove they wanted to sell shift product it's actually really interesting eric you supplied that press conference uh, that I basically play a clip of at the beginning of the show, which is from August the 29th, 1965 in LA at Capitol Records. And first and only time I've ever heard that in stereo, it's fantastic. Well, think of what else was going on in those couple of days. And that's, as I say, that's my seismic shift. Mm. That was when, that was when the LSD had been ingested. And I kind of think, yeah, a whole new Beatles had been born, and I think that that's one of the things I love about that press conference is because they are like, well, you know, Mr. Capital, go talk to him. You know? The great thing about the stereo is, though, you know, I've always heard that in mono, that press conference, and I always thought it was John saying, we make the records and they wreck them. And then I realized, listening to the stereo, it's actually Ringo who says that. Pretty mm. cool. Yeah. But what I was going to say is that it's interesting that they're carping about the formatting of the albums, right? You know, we send, send them 14 tracks and they only put out seven and all that stuff, but they never actually talk about the sonic differences. Yeah, that's true. They might not yeah. have known. Yeah, but that's what I'm wondering. Did they ever bother to listen to one of the American releases? Listen to that great moment uh, a few weeks, the two weeks before that press conference where John is at Shea Stadium. We'd like to slip... Do a slow song now, Rabak. Say, Yakamasi, Haho, Magogo. 
And it's also off Beatles 6 or something. I don't really know what it's off. I haven't got it. <laughs> That's it at all. I don't have yeah, it. Yeah, because is that the... I mean, when did they first hear? If they weren't hearing them then, was it like in 1972 they suddenly went, like, what in hell? Probably when John was living in so. New York, he must have heard some of them on the radio. Right. Yeah, he had to, he had to pick them back up, too, I think. Uh, and then once again, you, you, when you speak about uh, having heard them on the radio, I remember being really impressed with Please Please Me as I got older. Because when I grew up, I really didn't hear Please Please Me. I don't remember it much on the radio as a, as a little kid. But when I did hear it on the radio as a little kid was after we had shifted to FM, and the only thing you got was the stereo version where John stumbles over the lyric and kind of laughs, and, and it's kind of not really as—I mean, it's certainly not as powerful as the mono version. Last night I said these words to my girl. So I used to kind of wonder when I was 12 or 13, it's like, you know, really? This was their first number one? It's kind of, I don't know. <laughs> not, yeah. not, that, not that great. So I'm sure he heard that stuff and was embarrassed. And, you know, why would he take his Beatle records over from England? He probably just reordered them or just picked them all up from the office or something and then realized what they were giving him was the American ones. If you listen to that uh, September of 74 thing he does with Dennis Elsis, and they're kind of going over... You can hear John laughing as Elsa says, you know, electrifying big beat performances <laughs> by England's Palmer. You know, and he's just like, oh, God, you know, he's mortified. <laughs> yeah. In summary, what do each of you think of what Dave Dexter did? Uh, okay, you've already said about how he compiled the albums, and you, you, un you get that, and you think he did a pretty good job of that. But in terms mm. of his additional production... What, what do you think now in 2018? It was heavy-handed in some places, and uh, in some places it worked. Um, it's hard to say overall to give it an overall score. I mean, I would say that, like, on the Internet, Dave Dexter can either be a saint or the devil, depending on how people look at it. I, I, he's somewhere in the middle. He was a smart businessman who hedged his bets and uh, made things work for the American market. That's a, that's the only way I can really put it. I kind of agree. I, I agree with that. Um, there are some of his uh, production touches that are fairly egregious on specific tracks, like like She's a Woman and, and I Feel Fine, I think possibly are the worst. But even among us, I mean, some of you guys prefer those to the British ones. So um, I think, you know, Dave Dexter was a guy who was not a rock and roll fan generally, not a Beatles fan in, you know, specifically. He was uh, a jazz guy. Yeah. Uh, and so he was in a certain way the wrong guy for this job. But when given the job to do, I think he did the best he could. And uh, with the exception of certain, you know, grand lapses of, of taste in terms of effects and the uh, 
a parent need to do fake stereo instead of either just leaving it in mono or uh, or trying to persuade England to send a stereo track? Uh, I think he he did a reasonably good job given his mandate, given his limitations, which mean, you know, partly the fact that he wasn't a rock and roll guy and partly the fact that he was limited to 12 tracks and had to have the singles on there. Um, I don't really think he's the devil. Uh, I I think maybe he could have been a bit more open-minded about uh, approving them to be signed by Capitol in, in the first place, but he wasn't and eventually they so you don't hear disdain in his productions because obviously a lot of people say well look he didn't want the Beatles in the first place and then they jump forward to after John died and he gave an interview in which he was none too complimentary about John right and people kind of put two and two together and maybe they're coming up with 16 but they're saying well you know that kind of suggests that there's some sort of disdain towards the Beatles on his part. I think that regardless of what he felt about the Beatles, uh, and, you know, in John's case, he said, I think in the interview you're talking about, that he, he didn't like John's attitude towards the fans, you know, and whatever else. But, uh, you know, the fact is, he was a professional record guy, and he was doing a professional job. He was told to do this, and put these out in a way that's going to sell for his company and I don't think that what he was doing was either uh, you know out of disdain or sabotage I think he was just trying to get the sound that he felt that American um, youngsters as he would have called us would have wanted to hear and uh, you know whether he liked them or not um, I I don't think that what he was doing was intended to make the record sound bad from his point of view. So he wasn't a saboteur. I don't think so. I have to agree with the guys pretty much. Uh, I, I guess I'm the extremist here because I think um, I, I probably have a bigger problem with the duophonic stuff than the other guys. Uh, you know, I, that I, I don't care for it, but I understand it in the context of the time. And that's the really important thing here for me, is I, I judge Dave Dexter's work in the context of the time. Uh, mm-hmm. As everybody else has said, he had a job to do. He did it really well, because all that stuff shifted. And I think that the proof that people still have an affection for it that made it uh, a commercially viable uh, for capital to reissue at least that first set of uh, which were kind of mostly from the original master tapes that we grew up with um is is a testament to uh to to that 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 we had affection for that now should those things be the definitive versions of them no no of course not and i i think it was a little bit shocking in 87 when the cds first came out because you guys might remember the first few albums were only offered in mono uh, which I remember people being bitched off about that, but then we got into the whole thing about that's when we really, I remember being very conscious of the idea that the Beatles weren't really all that involved with the stereo mixes, and the, especially the early albums. So they kind of felt, well, you know. At, at any rate, I think they've gotten it right by giving us access to these things, though I wish in 2014 they hadn't changed history. That I have a much bigger problem with. Mm-hmm. Uh, because now they're 
They're telling you they're selling you something, and they're actually not, and they're mucking with history, and there's nothing I despise more. But they did explain uh, what they were than, doing. They they did come clean about it immediately, and, and you know, as part of— Well, I mean, they admitted it, but I, I mean, I, but why do it? I right. mean, it just seemed like a stupid idea. I'm just, you know, it's kind of like, it's it's like, you know, I hope Paul McCartney's not listening. You know, like, let it be naked, you know, like the most useless record ever right. made. And it's like, just just don't don't bother. I, you well, know. I think their, their reasoning was that um, we want to put out something for people who like the American sequences, but we hate the sound of the American records, so we will... Oh, too bad. Yeah. Who asked them? By the way, um, the reason that Dr. Robert was not, you know, Dr. Robert was not included in the 2004-2006 because they didn't make it up to yesterday and today. That would be why I had well, to go to the Dr. Ebbett's needle drop to get that track. <laughs> they, um, it's interesting. Uh, this is what forces the hand of the bootlegger to me. It's like when you re- adamantly refuse to give the public what it wants, there's no other option but to go to somebody who mm-hmm. will. So that's that's why I have a problem with what they did in 2014. The packages are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I love having them, you know. So I was a sucker. I got them too. But uh, it's it really bothered me. It's just, just leave it alone. I don't care if you like it. That's not the point. It's we liked it. Okay, so for playing out on the show, each of you, if you could tell me your personal favorite Dave Dexter production. Roll over Beethoven. <laughs> oh, boy. Let me think. Probably roll over Beethoven. Of all the ones I listened to, I thought roll over Beethoven succeeded the best. It, mm-hmm. it does have an energy. I'm not sure I prefer it, but it certainly does have an energy. Rocking it too 
The Beatles, Naked. House production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow. Remember, for news first, when seconds count, keep tuned to WBZ. Oh, it sounds better every time I play it. 10.05 on WBZ, Bruce Bradley, Rainy Wednesday show. It's called She's a Nice Lady. I know her well. The Beatles. Time on WBZ. 10.08 is our time. Bruce Bradley, Wet Wednesday Show, The Drifters, and it's called Well, Saturday night at 8 o'clock. I know where I'm 